This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Jim Walker, Vice President of KSIH North America and Chair of the Ag Sector Board of the American Association of Equipment Manufacturers. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focusing on our one planet with six commitments. See the Good Growth Plan on the web at www.goodgrowthplan.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Jim Walker next. Syngenta's Good Growth Plan is about the biggest challenge facing humanity, feeding a growing population. Syngenta's Good Growth Plan is a six-point commitment to make crops more efficient, to rescue more farmland, to help biodiversity flourish, to reach and empower smallholders, to help people stay safe, and to look after every worker throughout the entire supply chain network. One Planet, Six Commitments. Learn more at www.goodgrowthplan.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. A cyclical revenue turn over the last few years has brought a progressive erosion of farm income across nearly every sector of the U.S. ag industry. Jim Walker, Vice President of Case IH North America, says the decline began with crops and now includes the livestock sector as well. It began in 2014 with the downturn of cash crop commodity prices, corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, that affected uh, the large producers and the grain producers in North America. We're now going into year three of that in 2016, and yet in 2015 we started to see herd sizes catch up to strong demand for beef, and we now see dairy prices, milk prices, and we see beef prices that are falling off. So for the first time in a long time in agriculture, it doesn't matter really what sector you're in, uh, whether it be livestock or whether it be commodities, uh, you have a downturn in the revenue you're experiencing. And so it's it's affecting a lot more people in, in agriculture. I think we've also seen a change in agriculture where machine technology is factored into the price per acre. Instead of producers buying a, a piece of equipment and owning it till it rusted down, mm-hmm. they continue to upgrade to make sure that they are the latest in line with technology. Is that pattern still active? Well, I think originally, you know, back in uh, 2012, 2013, the uh, the profitability of farm operations was so significant that people were buying just to buy. They, they didn't really. They were looking really for a tax shelter, if you will, taking the new equipment uh, with what technology it gave them. But it was really for the protection of the bottom line, right? And so that happened in both commodities and the uh, livestock sectors. Um, now customers have to look, no doubt, that uh, they want new technology. They want to be able to, you know, protect the bottom line. But at the end of the day, now the driver, uh, customers don't have to buy, so the driver is profitability. Uh, and so whatever we can do to either increase revenue or uh, reduce inputs or, or cost is certainly what they're looking for. So. Technology is is paramount right now in their buying decision. How is technology affecting your customer? How is technology affecting the way and, and the type of machines and the technology that you offer them? Oh, absolutely. With uh, GPS precision uh, technology that we have, we are farming and taking advantage of every inch that we plant. And what that means is that every each every inch that we're talking about takes into account, okay, the seed placement of how far uh, apart population-wise, the depth of it. Uh, when you start looking at then uh, insecticides, herbicides that are applied, uh, you know, where is it needed the most and what particular part of the field. Uh, and then as we're, you know, harvesting, 
you know, how can we maximize harvest and not lose any crop? So all through the cycle from planting to harvesting, it is a per square inch or by square inch battle. So from the equipment manufacturer's perspective, from the Case IH perspective, how can you define your customer in terms of their effort towards sustainability? Do you see them being fiscally responsible and environmentally responsible? Well, I think fiscally is their driver, but uh, I think environmentally is their heritage. Um, you know, they are members of the community that's more, it's certainly generations of ownership of that land, uh, and they're, they're stewards of that land. And so I think that uh, probably more than most other industries, I think agriculture has set a standard as being a, a steward of the land and looking out for the environment and everything we do from the uh, standpoint of runoff prevention, uh, airborne uh, movement of, of residue and so forth. I mean, we, we take a deep interest in it and have been for many, many years. So when we think about the sustainability story, it's easy to try to define for farmers, but does it also play into the equipment manufacturer's industry as well? Is sustainability a part of who you are and what you do? Well, absolutely, because you, you're you looking for uh, to produce equipment that will ensure that uh, as you're looking at tillage, as you're looking at uh, you know movement of the ground, if you will, that you're preserving as much as the nutrients in the soil that you can to make that producer long-term productive. So all the equipment we build that's ground-engaging especially, all the equipment we build and then also then anything with sprayer technology or anything that's applying something to the ground, we're making sure that we're taking care of the ground and we're making sure that they're the most profitable in doing it, but also sustaining the ground as we know it. What about research and development? R&D certainly in a downturn in, in an ag economy forces us to spend less dollars. We don't back off on uh, and actually increase the percent of our sales that we invest in research and development, um, but we have to recognize that we have less dollars to spend. Now, the positive is is that part of research and development is is always the uh, looking at the equipment you have running today, the quality aspect of it. So how much of your research and development do you have to spend on uh, on taking care of the products as they're running today uh, for quality? And what we're seeing is that we're able to spend less dollars on it because we are producing more robust long-term equipment, and we are being able to switch more dollars over into the true effects of research and development. Uh, plus, you have the effect that a lot of our dollars, even though we had more dollars back in 2012, 2013, more of those dollars were spent on emissions from the standpoint of conversion of tier engines than it was, uh, you know, let's say a new product. So, in all honesty, the new product uh, investment that we're making in 2016 is that much is not that much different in dollars that we made in new product, you know, non-emissions investments in 2012 and 13. Well, without giving away trade secrets, I would just ask, what are your customers asking for, or what do you anticipate that they're going to need for 2016 and beyond from a machine technology standpoint? Well, I think they're looking at uh, the the labor issue from the standpoint of agriculture is is a big target right now. That there is less and less uh, ability to have someone uh, you know work on the farm, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and so, what we're having to look for is technology that can replace, can be monitored in various uh, parts of the farm, 
but not have to rely on the individual operator, individual running that machine to be technically experienced at it. So all the things we're doing is to how do you set up a a vehicle-to-vehicle, how do you set up a vehicle-to-operating station of knowledge of equipment, and even from the standpoint of vehicle-to-dealership from a, a service monitoring of being able to help the producer out of forewarning if something is going to happen to his machine uh, or diagnosing it uh, uh, remotely and saving the cost of having to come out and see the machine. So when we look to Washington in the omnibus appropriation bill at the end of last year, Section 179 and some other provisions that agriculture had been calling for, Section 179 a little later than the ag industry would have asked for, but it's here now. How does it affect you? Well, I think it fits perfectly into what we were talking about of our producers having to to focus on profitability. And so when you have Section 179, which is certainly a tax assistance uh, depreciation uh, legislation, they can be looking at their, their cycle of farming from January through December. They can be looking at it and taking that depreciation into account uh, in their operation, their tax liability, as the year is going on. And a, a lot of large equipment, most of large equipment in agriculture, is purchased and ordered ahead of time. Uh, and so if they can take that, know that they can take that firm uh, Section 179 depreciation into account each and every year, it gives them the ability to plan their purchases uh, in addition to taking into account the, the tax legislation. One of the drags on the industry is obviously the used machines that are still available. Can Section 179 help? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it applies to a dollar amount of purchase, not new or used. So a lot of the equipment that's uh, in used inventory right now is low hour. Uh, and so certainly it helps from the standpoint of a purchaser who is looking for something of high value, low hour, uh, but as a used buyer, he's in the same situation. He can take advantage of Section 179 and will help us move more of that equipment into the marketplace. We are in the budget process now for the new fiscal year. The president has proposed, again, cuts to crop insurance. Does the crop insurance program is that on the radar of equipment manufacturers? I think crop subsidies, per se, are, are certainly something that we're willing to and need to give up, if you will, on mainstream crops. There's specialty crops that are going to have to have assistance to be able to be a competitor in the world market. But when you look at uh, standard commodities like uh, you know corn and soybeans and so forth, there isn't a need for crop subsidy. What there is a need for is because of the value of the crop that's being put in the in the field that we do need a catastrophic insurance provision. Uh, and we saw that uh, in 2012 when we had the drought uh, and how in the Midwest, which Ten years earlier would have wiped those producers out, would have been a tax burden on the, on uh, a burden on Washington to take care of those producers. Uh, and instead, because we had the, the crop insurance, we, we seamlessly transitioned from one year to the other. So we adamantly believe that we have to have that type of legislation in place. There is at bay discussion uh, from the Environmental Protection Agency on a number of angles, and there's legal taking place now with the EPA's decision on the renewable fuel standard. Mm -hmm. How does the RFS affect your customer? How does it affect your industry? 
Well, I think when it was originally put into uh, legislation and uh, the RFS or Renewable Fuel Standard, uh, it was with the idea that the blend, number one, the, the reason was the right one, to reduce emissions in North America. And we as mag manufacturers also contributed to that in uh, our conversion and investment of lower emissions engines. So, you know, the agricultural sector bought into this, uh, you know, stewards of the land and the air of being uh, assistance in emissions control. So when that was passed, a lot of producers geared up, a lot of uh, industry moved towards uh, building and capitalization of ethanol refineries uh, and those types of investments. Producers, uh, you know, changed from soybeans over to corn to be able to help fill those needs. And so we went to E, you know, E85 blend of, uh, of fuel. So there was a lot of infrastructure put in place based on that legislation. Now, to want to reduce it or put it in line with the corn that's necessary to meet the demands of E85 blending, we absolutely support. And we're not in favor of the RINs that are, you know, awarded for overproduction, but within the, the mandate of RRFS. So in reducing it to actual blend that's needed, we 100% support. But what we're facing is an oil industry that is aggressively lobbying to just dismantle RFS. And again, with all these infrastructures that we put in place, even in the, in the economy of uh, E85, uh, when it's 30, 35, 40% of the corn crop being used for ethanol refinement in North America, in the U.S., it would be catastrophic to just eliminate uh, and, and unreasonable to eliminate, if you will, RFS. There is continued talk now of the EPA perhaps bringing new regulations with air, even toward ozone. How much work did equipment manufacturers and money put in to match Tier 4 for engines? And if the EPA were to pursue Tier 5, what does that mean to the bottom line? Well, the I would have to say the, the, the biggest hit was, you know, the Tier 4A, Tier 4 interim, the, the first changeover. It was the biggest reduction in emissions uh, that we looked at uh, or faced. Uh, it was the biggest cost of putting the fundamentals of the engine operation and ability to do that in place, going from 4 interim to 4 final. Uh, certainly cost a little more, but it was at a minor reduction of emissions. So uh, I think that if we go to 5, um, I think they need to understand that even though there would be a minor, minor reduction of emissions in going to that, it does change the complexity of what engines have to do to be able to do it. Uh, it doesn't sound like you would. You know, to just say maybe just a little bit more reduction, but in fact, when you look at the engines that we have today in 4B, there would have to be a, a major structural change to the engines to be able to get that small reduction that we're looking for. So we're a little nervous that, you know, should we really, you need to weigh the, the pros and cons of it. Uh, and I think once we sit down and, uh, with officials and have the ability to say, this is really what you're going to cost manufacturing, this is what you're going to get out of it, we, we feel that that will be judged uh, appropriately. Let's move up to the stratosphere and look at the globe for the longest time, and still, U.S. agriculture, a leader. But what other parts of the globe are catching up, and how is the work and the, the development in those countries, is it having an effect on U.S. agriculture, or is it just the opposite? Well, I think, you know, the advent and, and continuous uh, evolution of social media ha has made it to where, 
no matter whether we go to f from 5 billion to 9 billion, 6 billion, 10 billion, it doesn't matter the population in the future by 2050. The exposure of what is available to people around the world is getting, you know, closer and closer every day. So the really third world countries, yes, there are, and, and I don't want to demean that, there are some, but they're to a lesser degree as they have been in the past. And so I think the technology demand, the machinery, the uh, ability to, you know, to produce and the, and the opportunity to produce and enhance manners around the world is escalating. And, and we are being able to feed ourselves more domestically than depending upon foreign, uh, you know, foreign types of investment. So from an equipment perspective, how is that changing? Or is it changing the focus of equipment manufacturers to provide products for those farmers, technology for those farmers? Well, absolutely. You're seeing in enhanced of all manufacturers, you're seeing increased and enhanced domestic in, uh, um, investment, capital investment in local production. Um, Latin America is, uh, you know, a, a prime example of Laboon in Argentina and Brazil and the manufacturers that have moved down there and have local production in those areas. Uh, you know, you're looking at Africa, South Africa now. Uh, uh, you look at India, uh, areas like that, China. Um, you know, all the areas that maybe 15, 20 years ago we would have said we'd like to ship there. Now there's the manufacturers are all putting in place local content, employing the population, uh, and then also uh, the components that are necessary from suppliers, local suppliers. So we have moved to, because of awareness uh, of what's available to people uh, on, on social media, we have moved to local content production. What about the value of the dollar in relationship to other currencies? I think it's uh, important from the standpoint of if you, if you really are producing on a local content, it, it negates it. Uh, if you still need the hedge from the standpoint of the exchange rates, you can maximize that by just producing exchange of product in your different marketplaces. So the exchange doesn't come into play near as much as it did when we were shipping, let's say, from North America to all around the world and had the different uh, currencies that we had to play against. Years ago, and even the name of your company has suggested consolidation in equipment manufacturers. A lot of, a lot of change took place a few years ago. Now those changes are coming with consolidations and mergers and seed and crop protection technology. Do those changes affect you and do you see this industry in manufacturing moving to additional consolidation? I'm not sure if manufacturers will take the same route that uh, services have taken, such as inputs. Um, I, I think that I think the inputs have seen that can they offer, uh, can they change their complexion of value add and and what they offer to a producer uh, of the input side of it. No one has jumped in from an input side and jumped into the the, the manufacturing machinery end of it. No one, truthfully, on the on the manufacturing end, has really en engulfed the input side. There's been some movement of providing maybe some of the uh, uh, some of the software, if you will, and those types of things, data, but but not the ownership of the input. So I think it's a it's a slippery hill uh, slope, if you will. Um, I think it would somebody. Uh, I think the future of what does a company look like is still out there, unknown. Um, I think all manufacturers, whether we're an iron manufacturer as we are today, or whether we're an input company or soft company uh, such as a chemical or a seed producer, I don't know whether you can combine those services and become an all-encompassing company. Jim, we want to thank you again for spending time with us on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and sir, you have the last word. 
Well, I think that, uh, you know, we've weathered this uh, downturn in the last uh, two years so far uh, of, of the industry being down roughly 50 percent. We, we, you know, from two years ago, we think it's going to continue to, you know, so, you know, decline again this year a bit. Uh, but I think we, we can at least see the bottom, I think, looking forward. And I think that producers uh, who weather this, manufacturers who weather this, uh, certainly are those who took advantage of building their structure uh, not at the 2012-2013 uh, inflated levels of uh, commodities, let's say prices as a producer, or as production as a manufacturer. And we feel we're one of those, uh, and we look forward to this thing kind of uh, cycle coming up back again and moving forward in the marketplace. Our thanks to Jim Walker, Vice President of Case IH North America and Chair of the Ag Sector Board for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focusing on our one planet with six commitments. See the Good Growth Plan on the web at www.goodgrowthplan.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.